want to talk to you about something the late the Lord put on my heart some time ago. And uh, I want to share that with you tonight. And if you would help me, if we just go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask that his will would be done, that I would speak his word. We know his word's already anointed. We don't have to pray for his word to be anointed, but that I would be anointed to preach, to speak, that we would be anointed to hear, not just to listen, but to hear what the Spirit is saying. Amen? Let's go to the Lord together. Lord, we thank you that we can come together, come together to worship you in spirit and in truth, to speak, to hear your word. God, I pray that tonight, Lord, let our ears be open to hear. Anoint me to say the words that you'd have me to say. God, we want to honor you. We want your purpose to be accomplished in this building tonight. Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Anybody believe in the name of Jesus tonight? Can we praise that name of Jesus? That worthy name of Jesus. There's nothing like the name, the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. The scriptures show us how Israel was brought out of Egypt by the mighty hand of the one true God. We see that in the scriptures, God did battle with the gods of Egypt through a series of ten plagues and the parting of seas and all that took place. And by the time it was over, it was very clear that there is no God like Jehovah, like the God of Israel, like the one true God. There's just no God like him, and there's no king like him. He is truly the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. There is nobody like Jesus. Jehovah brought out this chosen people, began to establish a new nation called Israel begin to organize it. You have to understand that when they went into Egypt, they were a family of 70. They come out, they're a multitude. There had never been any kind of structure. There was no such thing as a nation. They'd never been called a nation or referred to a nation. They go in a family, they come out a nation. So there's a lot of work to be done. And God begins to organize and structure his chosen people, his called people. And he, he puts a prophet leader in their lives by the name of Moses. He is a prophet. He is a leader. He would judge them. He would speak to them the words of God. He would hear from God. And he would be an intermediary between God and man, the prophet, the leader. And then also there is this role of high priest that is instituted because, really because of Moses' own request. It was God's plan to use Moses to be priest, prophet, judge. We see that that these roles are starting to be established as this nation is organized. And then there is a need for a military because of the areas of land that they're going to have to conquer. And so there's a military commander that is instituted by the name of Joshua. They are divided into 12 separate groups, what we call tribes, after the 12 sons of Jacob or of Israel. And then as time goes on, we still see that it is too, uh, too big. And because of the council of Jethro... The Bible lets us know that he took them from tribes and he also brought down their leadership to thousands and hundreds and fifties and even tens to organize this new nation. 
And so we find out that they become organized. They, they have a military. They have a priest. They have a prophet. They have rulers over the thousands and over the hundreds and the fifties and the tens. And then we get to the book of Joshua. And Joshua is an exciting book because Joshua, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and observing the death of all those 20 and above, it is time to possess the promise of the Lord. And don't we enjoy possessing promises? <laughs> There's nothing like possessing promises, the promise of revival, the promise of new birth. I don't know about you, but I get excited every time somebody is baptized in Jesus' name. Every time I get a report and somebody says, we baptized one person in Jesus' name, I'm like, man, it doesn't get any better than that. That, that is the promise being fulfilled. We hear testimonies of deliverance and the promises of the Lord. And it all starts with the fall of Jericho. The, the operation of possess the land, shock and awe takes place as walls fall flat. And Israel is given an incredible victory. From that time on, there are a few speed bumps like AI. But after that, they begin to expand and take over the land. And it's incredible. Israel grows and expands. They take homes that they did not build. They start having vineyards that they did not plant. God has given this promise to them. And they go from a, a family of 70 to now they are a nation that is known throughout the world. They would grow into a superpower in the ancient world, the envy of the ancient world. Everywhere they go, people knew the stories of Israel. This is the people that when they came to the seas, they part. This is the people that the walls fell flat and they never drew a sword. This is the people that has a powerful God on their side. How in the world did Israel go from the envy of the ancient world to a dispersed, scattered nation throughout the world today. There are more Jews in New York than there is in the land of Israel. How? How does this happen? How do you go from a period in time where you've been organized by God, your, your blueprint for, for your nation is divinely ordered, your, your word is written by the own finger of God. How do you go from that to a nation that is carried away captive several times in Babylon and eventually in 70 AD they, they are gone? How does that happen? You see tonight, my subject I want to talk to you about is the path to worldliness. The path to worldliness. You see, our path frequently mirrors what took place in the lives of Israel. This is why Paul informed them in Corinthians 10, 5, that with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust or desire after evil things as they also desired. Here's what the scripture says. Paul says, this great nation, this superpower of the ancient world, respected and awed and even feared, it came to a spot that on their journey, that from Egypt to today, there are bones that are scattered. The apostle would say, you, you need to wake up and understand 
that God was not well pleased even though he became their God, even though he did miraculous deliverance, even though he brought them through the sea and the cloud in baptism, so many of them lay scattered on the journey, on the path. They never fulfilled what God desired them to do. Tragically, we live in a world where too many in our contemporary world are not finishing well. There are too many that started out strong, but they are falling out by the way. And we can try to ignore it, act like it doesn't, but it's happening. It's happening where great young men who came up and were baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, and believed in the oneness of God and holiness and apostolic distinctions in their life. Something happens on the way. Now, the path of worldliness, when we say worldliness, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that get a lot of thoughts when you talk about that. But, but it might be, might be a little different what I'm thinking than what you're thinking. The Bible says as days go by, there are judges that begin to judge with Joshua, and then judges begin to follow Joshua. And, and there comes a time where Samuel records what would take place generations later after Israel has possessed the land and they are established as a solid nation. The Bible will let us go, and because of time, I'll not read the whole passage, but it's 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter. The Bible lets us know that eventually the elders get together. They come up to Samuel and said, you know, you're old, and your sons aren't walking in your ways. Make us a king like all the nations. I submit to you that this scripture records the first step to worldliness. Make us a king like all of the other nations that are around us. They begin to reason among themselves. And, and here is their thought process. Samuel is old. His children aren't walking in their ways. And so here's the solution they came up with. They had a, a strategy session. Let's get around the table. What's the problem? Samuel's old. Let's strategize. Let's come up with a solution to our dilemma. And here was their dilemma. Let's, let's have a king like all the other nations that are around us. And I ask you, what was it about the surrounding nations around them? What was it about their leadership model that was so attractive to Israel? What was it that when Israel looked at all the nations around them, they say, you know what? We want to be just like them. How, how does this happen, Israel? You're, you're the one that God fought your battles. You're the one that God brought you out. You're the one that you've seen God operate time and time again. When you're hungry, he brings manna and quail. When you're thirsty, he brings water out of a rock. When you have enemies in front of you that are insurmountable, you can march around them and walls fall flat. What is it about this that you say, you know what? We want to be like them. You see, kingship in the ancient world, kings had limitless power and authority. And it was believed that kings had been lowered from the gods. And that's why kings were often considered to be gods. And that that was a part of God's plan of creation to organize the world. And so a king was sort of a vice-regent ruler. In fact, if you'll see in the New Testament, what really brings it alive is most of the things that are said about Jesus were said about Caesar. And so it becomes us, let us know he's the king of kings, that, that he is Lord. All of these things were proclaimed about Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Savior. The gospel of men. And conquest was designed when nations would 
go out and conquest. It was to take the natural resources and trade routes from other nations. It was to bring plunder back to fill the royal coffers. It was to employ slave labor into the kingdom and reduce the burden of the population. There's a lot of superficiality that came with monarchy. Superficiality, the the term literally means from the surface up, not going below the surface. There's a lot of pop and circumstances with the monarchy. We see this still today in formal celebrations when it's not been too long with, with the Great Britain and, and the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. And, and we've been aware of William and Kate's wedding and what happened with Princess Diana's funeral. Do you realize when those things happen, even over here on the other side of the pond, if you will, people stay up or they want to watch it live. And, and all of a sudden, they bring out helmets that have not been used in in decades and sometimes in centuries and they put armor on that they do not use and they get out horses and carriages that date back hundreds of years and they polish them up and they go through the streets and they take specific routes because we want to fulfill all the pomp and circumstance of hundreds upon hundreds of years of our monarchy. So it becomes something to celebrate tradition in our past. It's the pride. It's like the Olympics. We want the whole world to see us as we celebrate our traditions. What is apparently clear is this, is that their motivation was sparked. It was fueled by their focus on the world around them. They were focused more on what they were missing out on than what God had done in their life. They were looking more on what the, the pomp and the circumstance and the celebration and all the pride of nations around them in their king that they could see. And here Israel was, we serve a king that you just can't see. And it's not as exciting. We don't have as much flash. and We don't have as much stage presence because we can't bring our king out and show you him in flesh and blood. It's critical to understand that the rejection of the judge, of the prophet, was not a personal rejection against man. Critical to understand this. They were not rejecting Samuel. The Lord was very clear about this. He said, Samuel, when they reject you and they want a king, they're not rejecting you. Rather, they're rejecting me because I'm the one that put this structure in the place. I'm the one that ordained that this is the way my people will be governed. And the word of the Lord came. And you see, there is a difference between a prophet and a human king. There's a stark contrast. You see, kings speak their word and they build their kingdom. But prophets speak the word of God and they build his kingdom. There's a big difference between a king of this earth and a prophet of God. He lets them know, this is what I want you to know. Here, here's what's going to happen when you go this way of the world. This is the effects of the path of worldliness, they're going to get your sons and daughters. They're going to take your sons and the pomp and circumstance that you think so cool and the military precision, they're going to turn your sons into charioteers, horsemen, runners, and soldiers. They're going to put them into agriculture where they'll plow the king's ground and they'll reap his harvest. They'll put them in factories where he'll make weapons of war and equipment for the king's chariots. And your daughters, they'll take your daughters and your daughters will be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And, and they're going to use your children to build their kingdom. 
They're going to take possession of your fields and your vineyards. The things that God gave you, they're going to take from you what God blessed you with, what the inheritance God gave you, and they're going to use them for their venture. They're going to take a tithe of your grain and the vintage of your wine for their officers and their servants. They're going to take your male and your female servants. They're going to take the finest of your young men. They're going to take your donkeys, and they're going to take your sheep. They're going to take it all for their kingdom. And eventually, a time is going to come out where you're going to cry out because of the oppression of going the way of the world. It wouldn't be long. We would have Solomon. Is Solomon your poster child for a good king? We'd have David. We'd have Solomon. And we'd have Rehoboam. 1 Kings 12, 14 says, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. Now, we, we, we love King David, and we talk a lot about King David, but the point I want to make to you tonight, it was never God's intention for them to have a king. And you can talk about David all you want to as a man after God's own heart. And David had his flaws. He was a man after God's own heart. But besides David, can you name me a, a handful of kings that were righteous, godly men? You might have a time of revival. Be even with somebody like Jehu. He would never forsake the, the golden calves. He would never lay aside the sins of Jeroboam. The fact is the monarchy was a failure. And then eventually, it would take God's people in the captivity that God who had brought them out of Egypt, his people would go back into another captivity in Babylon. Why? Because they went the way of the world. Their eyes were on the world. They got... And here's what 1 Samuel eight nineteen says. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we may be like all of the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. What in the world are you talking about? You want a king to go fight your battles? You want a king to be your judge? Rather than the omniscient God who knows all things. Rather than the God who, whether he wants to call hail or whatever he wants to do to win the battle, that God is one insurmountable, but you're going to trade that for to be like our world. The kings would fulfill every prophetic word spoken by the man of God. Eventually, within four kings, the kingdom is, the nation is divided, never to be reunited again like it was fully. You have Judah and you have Israel, and, and by seven 20 B.C., they're going to come in. They're going to take the northern captives. By 586 B.C., they're going to come into Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple, and they're going to take them out captive. There will be a time where they'll come back together. There, there's a time where the remnant comes, and they begin to build, but they never all came back ever, ever again. They will never all be in Israel ever again in the history of time to this day. By 70 A.D., when Titus, when march into Jerusalem and destroy the temple that has never been back to its fully former glory. And now today, there are Jews throughout the world 
when God had a place and a plan and a government for their lives, but the path of worldliness, it destroys, it takes back into captivity, and it will get your sons and your daughters. It will destroy the next generation. They will not know what freedom really is. And so tonight, the path to worldliness. I don't know, I've been, I've been blessed to serve in this capacity for 40 years now. And that, that's had a lot of experiences with it. Numerous churches and situations in my life, in this district and in other areas that I serve. And I, the Lord started dealing with me some months ago about some things that I'd witnessed and discerning that the foundation for many of our symptoms presenting problems that is, is thwarting revival and unity and growth and holiness and spirituality in our church, churches, is a doctrine we don't talk about nearly as much anymore. We, we just don't talk about worldliness as much anymore. When we talk about worldliness, we're not talking about the physical universe. We're talking about the system of things, the order of things that are in our world, the philosophy that governs our world. You see, the Bible lets us know in John 15 and 19, you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The Bible is very clear that he has called us out of this world. He has called us to be separate from this world. His government is not the same of this world. He doesn't fight like this world does. He doesn't judge like this world does. He doesn't lead like this world does. It is the kingdom of God. Titus would say, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, epithumia, worldly desires, just the desire for the world that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You know what the scripture is teaching us that the, the Bible is teaching us is that salvation, the spirit of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and desires for the things of this world. And ungodliness and worldliness is synonymous in this scripture. That's why the scripture would say, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Opposing kingdoms, opposing values, what, what fellowship does light and darkness have? And they go together and be in agreement. No, it can't take place. There's a separation. The Bible says that Demas has forsaken me. Why did he leave Paul? Because he loved this present world. Several months ago, I was leaving a meeting in the central part of our state. And I was going to another city to stay in a hotel that I'd never been to uh, before, at least from that place. I, I'd never been from this place to that place. And so I just punched it in the GPS. It was late at night, and uh, I'm driving on the road, and I'm following it. My GPS, I know there's a lot of weird GPSs out there, but it's always gotten me where I needed to go. And it was going this time, and I come down this two-lane road, and all of a sudden, I'm down a two-lane road. It's, I'm out in the country, and there's, the road is barricaded. It's, it's stopped. It's blocked, and there is a bridge out. Well, my GPS doesn't know what to do. 
And so I figured, well, I'm just going to drive around till it gives me another route. You know, I'm by myself. By this time, it's about midnight. And, and so I just turn on a road. I figure I get away enough, and it'll change locations. And it dead ends. This road I'm on dead ends at a farmhouse. And I threw that in the reverse as fast as I could because I'm sure this farmer down, you know, however many miles down this two-lane road, if somebody is pulling up in his drive at 1 o'clock in the morning, he's reaching for the shotgun, you know. <laughs> so I'm turning that. I'm getting out as fast as I can. And I'm going down. I, I went down one road. I, I went down one road. that I could not have passed another car on that road. There was not room. I was praying. I was praying that I would not come on anyone at that night. And surely, eventually, it worked its way out, and I found my way back to civilization, and I made it. But in, in the middle of that, I was wondering, how in the world did I end up right here? How did this happen? And yet, I talk to people all the time that they look at me across the desk and say, how did we end up here? How did my marriage end up like this? How, how did my relation, how did my children end up in this state? What happened that we got to where we were at? I was just going along and along for the drive and trusting the direction. And too many have begun to view the church and, and all of a sudden we start looking, how come people are ending up where they're ending up? I want you to know it is the path of worldliness and once you start, you'll never know where you're going to end up. There's got to be something that gets a hold of us. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. I'm going to build my life on the word of God, the plan of God, the authority of God, the structure of God. So I'm just asking for an audience for the rest of this message. I'm asking just to listen and give an audience and pray about what I have to say. I might be wrong and, and you'll pray about it and you'll feel, but I feel this pretty strongly. There are too many who have begun to view the church of the living God as a corporation, as a business, among other worldly paradigms. I've heard people say you need to run the church like a business. Jim Collins was a business guru, wrote Good to Great, Built to Last, many other books. He said concerning nonprofit groups like churches, he says, why would you run your nonprofit like a business seeing that most businesses are run poorly? Fact of the matter is, is all over. We see things collapsing and disintegrating and all that's taking place. But all of a sudden, there's some idea that, that you know, if I can just look at our world and, and bring that into the church, the church is not a corporation. It is not a business. It, this is not about a board that gets together, that hires and fires officers, the pastor, because the bottom line is not met. You see, we have different philosophies and values. This is not about the bottom line and, and we have to answer to the shareholders and we didn't bring in enough money so we got to let the preacher go. John 18, 36 says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. He wanted them to know we don't go in the same operating procedures as our world does. This is God's house. We don't need another king. We already have a king. His name is Jesus and he has already determined this is my church. 
I'll build it. I'll structure it. I'll organize it. Now, don't take me out of context. There's a lot of things we can learn. But they've got to be in alignment with the Word of God. The Word of God must be the filter that we view everything in our world through. I'm not interested in IBM. I'm not interested in trying to make the first apostolic church of Aurora like Hartford or something of that. No, I want a church of God. I want the king to say, this is my church. This is my body. I don't want him to be confused with our world. See, see you have to understand is the church is not a democracy. This is not a place where everybody gets a vote. It is a theocracy, a monarchy, and when Jesus Christ is king, and he's already determined what's right and wrong and the way we should walk. We don't have time to vote whether homosexuality is acceptable or not or whether we should preach in holiness or, or modesty or gender. No, 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 that's already been decided. It's the king. This is his church, his body. He's already put it in motion. Thank you. You see, it's different. We live in a consumeristic world. And yet the principles of the kingdom of God is not consumerism, it's servanthood. But when you start getting a worldly church, people come to consume rather than to serve. It's the spirit of the world that starts getting into the church. You see, big difference between consumerism and servanthood. When you have a consumeristic mentality, it's self-focus, it's about me. When you have a servanthood focus, it's about others, it's about God. When you have a consumeristic focus, you know, it's, it's like going to a restaurant. You go to a restaurant, you arrive, you want somebody to serve you, you want somebody to set you down at a nice table, you want them to get your drink order filled and bring your food and and you see, you become critical and you complain if your personal expectations aren't met. You know why? Because I paid for this. I expect to be served. I, I'm here to be a consumer. I paid for this. I demand this because I'm putting my good money down for that. So it's about us. And when people have a consumeristic mindset, that's how they come to church. The music, the sound, the how long the pastor preaches, what's happening here and there. Oh, wait, wait, I, I, I pay my tithes to this church. I give in the offering to this church. I, I give to this church. Yeah, but what you have to understand is this is not Kmart, this is not Walmart, this is not the Cracker Barrel. You see the difference in the kingdom of God? I go to a restaurant and I pay them to serve me. But in the kingdom of God, you come and you pay to be able to serve. You see, in the kingdom of God, you can't even serve if you're not paying your tithes and your offerings because it's not about consuming, it's about giving, it's about serving, it's about God and his kingdom and what he has done.
You see, when you aren't serving him or worshiping him, you'll start worshiping yourself, and it'll become about yourself. And we live in a world that has an entitlement mentality. They are consumers, and it's all about me and what you've done to me. And if we're not careful, we'll bring it into the church, and all of a sudden, we've created a worldly, carnal church. And when we come to the house of God, you know what we do? We come to give. We're saying, how much can I give to missions? How much can I give to North American missions? How much can I give to the church of God? What can I do? I'll pay to serve. I'll give to serve. Let me be a part. You see, two different mindsets. The five-fold ministry was instituted by Jesus Christ for the governance of the church. There's an independent spirit, more so in North America, Western culture, than anywhere else in the world. We live in this postmodern society, this emergent aspect, pluralism, where we are in the time of, of house churches and internet churches and coffee shop Bible studies. Well, what's wrong with that? There might not be anything wrong with it, but underneath a lot of this is there is a spirit of independence. And I don't want a pastor over me. I don't want a man of God to speak into my life. I'll just get together. We'll open the Bible, and I say, hey, this is what it means to me. What does it mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what did he say? What did it mean to him? He's the king. We don't decide what scripture means. He decided what the word of God means. It was Jesus. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. He himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Why and where? Till we are a perfect man to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. That we are no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, speaking the truth in love that we may grow up. You see, you've got to understand, God's plan was never for you to get together and say, well, let's figure out what, no, God's plan was to have a man of God in your life who had a recall of God on his life, an anointing on his life, a power on his life to say, thus says the word of God, come out, measure up, get with it. This is God's church, God's kingdom, God's house. He's the king. You see, God has placed overseers in the church, ordained by God, called by God. We need men of God and women of God. And it's not because it seems like the cool thing to do, but there is a call of God upon your life. I, I guess I'm old-fashioned, and I believe that you have to have God call you. No one else can call you to be a preacher and a teacher, a prophet, an evangelist, an apostle. But when God calls you, there is an authority that comes with the call of God that you are to do the work. You are to preach the truth. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke. Exhort with all long suffering and teaching. We do not operate like our world does. He has the right to govern his church. 
The Bible lets us know. Acts would let us know. Acts 20, 28. Take heed to yourselves and all the flock whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the shepherd, the church of God, which he has purchased with his, it is his church. We're not going to vote on truth. We're not going to vote on righteousness. We're, we're not going to vote on a lot of these things. You see, the consumeristic mindset of the world is infiltrating much of the church world. And so all of a sudden, we're going to vote on whether or not we will have homosexuals in the pulpits. And we're going to vote on the platform and the music or whatever it might be. That's just an example. And there is no vote. We're never going to do that because we understand we have no power to do it. We did not purchase this church. We did not bleed for it. We did not die for it. It is not ours. We have a king who is the king of kings. Purchase his own blood, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. See, when a man of God warns you in your life, take notice. Don't shake it off like you're reading an advice column in the newspaper, like it's a Dear Abby column. When he opens up the word of God and begins to proclaim the word of God, the Bible says there's two things we have to guard. We have to guard from wolves. And wolves will come in, meaning that wolves are on the outside. That's our world. That can be education, entertainment. It, it can be all sorts of things that can come in, celebrities, music, government, religion, whatever it might be, things from the outside that try to work its way into the church that we have to take notice of, we have to watch for, because whatever is happening in our world, it's just a matter of time till it'll try to work its way into the church. But he says not only that, you have to watch for more than just wolves from the outside, you have to watch for those who will rise up among you. They'll start speaking perverse things. Speaking, they start using the tongue to start causing division and discord and to try to draw away because what they're interested in doing is building up their kingdom. They want to be king. This is where Lucifer fell. and This is what happens when we start rising up among ourselves. It's interesting, Proverbs 6 talks about six things that the Lord hate and the seventh is an abomination and three out of the seven have to do with the tongue because there's a difference between suicide and genocide, mass murder. And when you start using the tongue, it doesn't just affect you. It's not just killing yourself. It kills other people. So that's why you have to be careful with the tongue. And the Bible says there will people who will rise up from the inside and they'll start using the tongue to start speaking perverse things. Can I tell you, when somebody rises up even within the church and they start speaking other things than the word of God and the doctrines that you have been taught, you need to get away from that and get back to your man of God and say something's not right here. It might have come from the inside, but it doesn't line up with the word of God. I must hurry to a close. He has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. It is the kingdom of God. You see what happened? Jesus came back. In the New Testament, to establish the kingdom of God. The beginning of the New Testament, 
is the fulfillment of what took place in Genesis. In Genesis, and begins the word was the word of God. John 1, the word was made flesh. and begins to let us know that there's a new creation. It's the new kingdom of God. He is the last Adam. And that God, what, what we saw in the Old Testament is when people got away from the structure and the organization and how God had put in his place his kingdom, they end up in dispersion. They end up in servitude. And so the New Testament says we're going to get it right this time. And Hebrews begins to talk about how this kingdom and this covenant is better than that one. And it says, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And called by God as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, Melchizedek is mentioned 14 times in the book of Hebrews, but... Melchizedek is an Old Testament figure. It goes back into Genesis, the 14th chapter, when the Bible says Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High. You got to understand what's taking place. This mysterious figure, Melchizedek, brings out bread and wine and what looks like an old, old shadow, uh, a type of communion, the bread and the wine. And the Bible says that we have a high priest, a better high priest. And he's not a priest after the order of all these other priests. That, you know, he's after the order of Melchizedek. And when you go back to Melchizedek, you find something very, very interesting. Is Melchizedek was priest, but he was also the king. It was embodied in one person. And you see what happened in Israel is when they started wanting to split this out and all of a sudden you had a man of God and all of a sudden you had a worldly king and, and you see the battle that takes place throughout the Old Testament and Jesus said, you know what, you wanted to go after the world. You, you lusted after the world and as a result, you rejected me and you got a king of the people but I'm gonna come and the church of the New Testament is gonna get it right. We're not gonna have a priest over here and a king over here. No, I'm bringing it all back together in me. I I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but I am a great high priest as well, priest and king. You see, this is God's church. He's the authority. He's the priest. He's the king. He's the judge. It's all in him. <laughs> he came to reunite the king. He came to say, don't go after the path of this world. Go after the kingdom of God. Would you stand with me tonight? You see, Malachi says it like this. A son honors his father, a servant his master. Then I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my reverence? To you priests who despise my name. Yeah, you say, in, in what way have we despised your name? He says, you offered defiled food on my altar. And you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would you accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? You know who Jehovah is talking to? He's talking to the priesthood. He's talking to the men of God. And something happened where they stopped building his kingdom and reverencing and honoring him and they started reverencing and honoring people. Yeah. 
And they began to lower the bar to please people. Somebody bring a blind sacrifice. Well, I'm going to give you my sick animal because I, I can make a whole lot more money off my healthy one. I, I can use him. And so I'm going to give you one that's sick, one that's blind. And, and the Lord says, if you're a governor on this earth, Cain, you would give him the best. You, you wouldn't offer them to him. And yet you're going to bring it to the house of God. You see, that was carnality. That, that was flesh. But the problem was is that the priest accepted it. They said, okay, we want to make it easy. We want to lower the standard. We want to lower the bar. And we'll start accepting just whatever you want to bring. And he said to the priesthood, I, I put you in that place for you to be an under-shepherd, for you to be... You to be my voice upon the earth for you to be a prophet, an apostle, a pastor, an evangelist, a teacher, for you to preach the word of God. And yet, when people come and they wanna, they wanna get by with giving less than their best, when they don't wanna meet the criteria that I've stepped in your word, you, you just start lowering the standards because you wanna make it easy, because you want people to like you, you want people to think, what a, what a great guy or gal. And so you start lowering it. It's a path of worldliness. Pharmacist Robert Courtney is a pharmacist. He made $19 million. Yet it was from fraud. He was convicted of diluting the medication of cancer patients in order to make a profit. Over about nine years, he diluted an estimated 98,000 prescriptions of medication affecting some 4,200 patients. At least 17 cancer patients died after receiving diluted forms of chemotherapy. They sentenced him to a 30-year prison sentence. He was entrusted with the responsibility of handling a life-saving medication. And he probably started out with a heart that wanted to serve and a heart that wanted to do good, but somewhere along the line, carnality and flesh got involved and he started saying, you know what, I'm gonna lower the bar. I'm gonna lower the standard. I'm just gonna give them that there'll be some of the medication. There'll be some of the formula, but I'm gonna dilute it because I can make a lot more money and I, I can enhance my lifestyle and my home and my vacation home and all of these by diluting the formula. Problem is, with so many died or didn't get the treatment because he lowered the standard. You see, men of God and ladies of God, when we talk about worldliness in our world, most of the time we talk about what is coming into our churches and through folks in the church. But the path of worldliness starts with the preacher. path to worldliness starts when we say okay we're going to compromise God's way and God's plan and God's organization and God's structure and God's word and we're going to lower the bar and we're going to dilute it because either we want to please people by making it easier or there's some benefit for ourselves how 
feel better. People will like me. Whatever it is we wrestle with on the inside. And we have to be men of God. That means we preach and teach and lead without fear and without favor because our goal is to please the king. It's not my kingdom. It's his kingdom. He's the Lord of all. He's the master of all. He's coming back for his church. It's not my church. My responsibility is to keep the standard high and say, there's a God that loves you. Come in, come in, come out from among the world. Be separate from the world. Let God structure your life. Submit to him. Let him be the Lord of your life. Because as the old song says, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So every time I dilute, every time I lower the bar for whatever need I have at that time, what I have to understand is I'm disqualifying people. I'm disqualifying people. And one day they're going to knock on my door and say, we entrust, you are entrusted with the life-saving formula. Why? And all of a sudden you say, well, I used, to say, I used to say it was essential that you speak with other tongues as the initial evidence of the Holy Ghost. But now, I, I sort of said it's optional now. I used to say you must be baptized in the name of Jesus. It is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I used to say that, but now I say, well, it's really not a big deal. It's just sort of outward sign. and It's not all that important how you're baptized, what name, what formula. How did that happen? As I took, oh, it doesn't matter how you live that perverse doctrine that somehow we can be apostolic and, and, and say words well they believe the doctrine but they just don't believe the standards of apostolic identity where did you get that from not the bible you know where you got that from looking to our world and seeing this church or that church or this personality or that personality come out from among them and be separate. Get a hold of the word of God. I'm not going to dilute it. I'm not going to water it down. Let God be true. Let God be true. And so my call, and I'm thankful for everyone who's here on the first night, but is to our preachers pastors, our assistants, are you if you're a preacher, a man or a woman of God, I want to open up these altars and I, I wish I wish we would congregate around this altar and make a commitment to understand that you have been entrusted by God with the life saving formula, he has put his word into your mouth and into your hands, preach it, teach it don't compromise it. Don't water it down. Don't look after our worlds. Don't pattern yourself after corporate America or megachurch America. Get a hold of the world. Preach it. I wonder if the rest of us could come in and follow up and fill this altar in a time of prayer, time in the world, and make a commitment. Oh, God, I'm not going to adulterate the life-saving formula. 